1: to wrestling omakase. It is episode number 237 and this week I am pleased to be joined by a returning guest. Hello Matt.
2: Hey John, nice to talk to you again. Uh
1: how you doing today, Matt? What's up?
2: Doing all right. It's a rainy late October day here where I am, but we had trick or treating last night, so got to cross something off the to-do list and now getting to talk about some WCW which Either I will be very excited for or very depressed by. We shall see.
1: <laughs> um, so you you did your trick-or-treating yesterday? Why yesterday?
2: I don't know why they schedule it the way they do out here in Ohio, but um it was decreed from upon high that trick-or-treat is October twenty-eighth this year. And so that's when the kids got to go out.
1: That's interesting, I guess. I didn't I didn't know that was a thing. Like we're not gonna send them on Halloween going send them three yeah. days earlier for some reason
2: i so it definitely <laughs> wasn't that way when i was a kid no. and then me not I when have, i was a kid either right and then i have a couple kids now and everywhere we've lived when we've gone trick-or-treating it's like all right here's the trick-or-treat night and it's almost never halloween and i just don't understand why
1: very bizarre uh but yes yeah, so we're back here uh on a Makase. Um you know, before I get into anything else, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the Patreon going on pause. Because obviously that, uh, you know, if, you're, if you haven't been following the site or the Twitter, you would have no idea. So I just want to let everybody know. Uh, I, I put a lengthy post up that kind of went into all of it. But I mean, you know, the bottom line is uh, I did that Patreon for, you know, 17 months, almost a year and a half. And, you know, I had a lot of fun. Um... But, you know, at the same time, it was like when I first started it, right, you know, it was like May of 2020. So you're talking about like basically peak pandemic. Uh, I'm home all the time. I have so much free time and I'm like, you know, I got all these ideas and I had a blast sharing them with everybody. And I had, a, you know, I think people really enjoyed some of them, especially I think the uh, like the individual match series we did with like, uh, you know, Okada Tanahashi, Okada Naito and all that. Um actually, no, we didn't do Okada Naito, I'm sorry, Okada Tanahashi, I think we did Okada Tanahashi, Naito Tanahashi, and Naito Ishii, Um, and then the Tokyo Dome main event series, I know people seem to really like a lot too, Uh, you know, but but like when I, the point is when I started, I had a lot more free time, now it's like, you know, the world is reopening, uh, you know, especially the U.S., I guess, and I have, you know, a lot of plans, I'm, you know, I have Rangers uh 10 game season tickets and uh, you know, you know, buy quarter season tickets, I guess they call it, and you know, vacations coming up and all this stuff. And with nobody else to cover for me, right? It's just me, you know, doing the the solo content besides the you know, the full episodes we do with guests, it just started to become like more and more of like a burden. Like, okay, how am I gonna plan my entire life around being home? Uh, to record this stuff, especially during these tournaments, which are like, you know, covering, I, I, again, I like covering the G1, you know, on a daily basis and all these other tournaments I've been covering, but it's just, it's a lot of work. So, you know, I, and on top of that, I'm just, I, I am a little burnt out on wrestling in general. I mean, you know, if you follow my personal Twitter account, you've probably noticed, uh, a lot more hockey tweets (laughs) since the, the hockey season restarted and a lot less wrestling tweets, um, and it's just like, you know, I, I think over a year and a half of these clap crowds in Japan have taken a toll on everybody, uh, you know, not just me. And that's also probably one of the reasons why the uh, the patron count, not that I, I was very proud of my patron count. I mean, you know, a lot of people on that page, we have a lot more patrons on that Patreon, even towards the end here, around like 50 to 60, than a lot of websites I've seen with a lot, you know, in theory, in theory at least, a lot bigger following. So I'm very proud that the Patreon was uh, the success that it was. And I thank everybody that was a patron at any point. But there was a drop. I mean, at one point, we were around 70 patrons, you know, uh, pretty consistently. And then it dropped off to like between 50 and 60, usually closer to 50. Um, and weirdly enough, I got a bunch of signups right after I announced what was going on. I ate it, but uh, I guess people really wanted the, were afraid I was going to yank it down completely and wanted to download stuff. Um, so that was, uh, <laughs> you know, weirdly flattering, I guess. But yeah, I mean, so it was a combination of things. Like it's obviously, I mean, I'll be, I'll be upfront. It was making less money, right? Because you have less patrons. If it was still make if I still had 70 plus patrons, uh, and it was still making an extra, like a hundred, dollars a month, I'd, I'd have to think a little, a little harder probably about uh, pulling the trigger and taking this hiatus. But, you know, I'm glad it's not because I really am burnt out. Uh, I really do need a break. And, you know, that's what we're doing here. So on the the technical side of things, so if you're a patron now, uh, you do not have to cancel your subscription. You know, it's automatically suspended. You're not going to be charged on November 1st. Uh, as far as I know, and this is, uh, you know, again, I'm, I've never had a Patreon bef- put on hiatus before this. But as far as I know, You will continue to have access to the entire archives. If there's anything you didn't listen to, anything you want to go back and download, uh, it's all up there. So if you're a patron right now, you should have access to the archive indefinitely. You will not be charged the $5 on November 1st. Uh, So you can go on there and listen to whatever you want. Obviously, I'm not going to post anything new. So, you know, uh, but you don't have to delete your pledge, quote unquote, because you're not going to get charged every month. Uh, If you're not a patron and you really want to go back and listen to some of those archives, like I mentioned, you know, all the the Tokyo Dome series and all that, you can sign up for the $5 still. It's still at patreon.com slash wrestlingomakase. I'm not going to plug it every week anymore, and I'm not going to put it in the description. But you can sign up. Uh, You have to pay the 5 bucks. But again, the same thing as the existing patrons. You'll not be charged at the beginning of the next month. So in other words, you pay your $5 whenever you sign up. You have complete access to the archive. You can listen to all. I mean, I did the entire 1990s for the Tokyo Dome main event. It's actually kind of crazy when I think about it now. Uh, plus all these other tournaments, plus all this other audio on there. So you can always pay the 5 bucks to sign up and get access to the entire archive. And then again, you're not going to be charged on the next month. Now, my plan for now, I'm just going to leave it up there, and I'm going to keep suspending it each month. So again, it'll stay up there. You can stay a patron without paying stay keep access to the entire archive if and when i decide to bring it back i think i eventually i probably will bring it back um but it will really depend on like you know but it'll just depend like does japanese wrestling feel exciting again right like am i excited about japanese wrestling again i feel like when the fucking the last restrictions are removed and the crowds are allowed to cheer again and, you know, we're allowed to have international travel again. And, like, New Japan and all these other companies feel exciting again. I think I probably will, you know, get back into it enough to to restart the Patreon. But I will give everybody plenty of advance notice. So, you know, let's – throwing out a hypothetical here. If I decide to restart it in March 2022, which, you know, is kind of a month I'm thinking about in my head where, like, you know, the New Japan Cup is that month. I could restart with that month. If I decide to restart it in, like, March 2022 – I will tell everybody like, you know, well before that in February. So you can decide if you're still like signed up at that point, if you want to cancel and not be charged the five bucks, the start of March, you know, you'll have plenty of advance notice. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, You know, and I'm not saying I'm going to definitely restart it uh, March 1st, 2022, but you will get the, uh, if I do decide to do it for the following month, you'll get plenty of advance notice. That's my point. Um, But yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, You know, I had a really good time with it, but it's it's time to take a break. And it's time to, like, you know, relax a little bit. And, not, like, it really was starting to become so much work, especially during tournament season where, like, uh, I'm staring down at these upcoming, uh, the DDT, DO, and then the New Japan Best of Super Junior World Tag League schedules. I'm just like, I don't want to do <laughs> these daily audio on these fucking tournaments. Uh, and then on top of that, it became increasingly difficult to find guests sometimes for some of these topics. I mean, there are lots of, uh, you know, a lot of people that I, that I have had as guests in the past are just not watching as much wrestling either as much Japanese wrestling or any other kind of wrestling. So, you know, it's just became increasingly difficult to find guests for a weekly basis. So all this, by the way, means very little for the free, free feed. So we're still, obviously we're still here, uh, recording a free episode. Um, The free Omakase episode on the Voice Wrestling Network will continue. I'm going to keep it to the same every other week format, though. So basically, obviously, we went to the every other week format because the Patreon episodes were were the other week. Uh, But as I mentioned, you know, I'm just not that I'm not as into wrestling right now. Right. I'm not as into I'm not watching as much stuff. And as I just said, it's harder to find guests now. So this way it will really reduce my stress to only have to look for a guest. And only look for stuff to cover every other week instead of every week with these full episodes. So yeah, so we'll, the free feed. If you if you're you've never been a patron, if you've only listened to the free feed, uh, really nothing is changing for you. You're still going to get the same Omakase every other week that you've always gotten. If you are a patron, if you've ever been a patron, uh, again, I really thank you for you know supporting the the podcast and you know letting me do all that stuff. For all those months, I had a really, really good time doing it. Most of the time until I got burnt out towards the end. Uh, and again, I really appreciate you. And, you know, if we if we do uh, decide to restart it, I hope you will join me there. That was a lot, long, lo- a lot longer winded than I thought I would go on that. But yeah, if you have any questions, of course, you can always at me on Twitter. Uh, or you can post in the Discord. You know, all those links are in the description. Uh, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Okay, (laughs) so I talked a long time while poor Matt sat here. Thank you,
2: Matt, for uh, sitting through all that. Zero problem, John. And I'll just say super quick from a listener perspective, um, totally enjoyed listening to your Patreon content uh, from day one. It was fantastic. And at the same time, totally understand why you're stepping back uh without even doing a podcast. I have been largely burnt out from wrestling recently. And um yeah, just makes total sense. Thank you for all the great content and glad to see the free content is still going on. Uh thank you.
1: And of course you are here on a WCW Retro Roulette episode because, you know, I guess you're not that into the current wrestling either. But uh
2: yeah, actually, <laughs> I did <laughs> cut my New Japan World subscription even, which was my last link to current wrestling just this month. I was just like, I, I just don't really want to watch it that much anymore. I will come back when I'm ready for it. Yeah. But um, just, I love New Japan. It's my favorite modern promotion, but just felt like I needed a break from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really, you know, I, I, I still obviously watch New Japan. I watched the entire G1. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to watch Power Struggle. I've really fallen off big on AEW again, and it's just like I don't know. It's not like it's not like the show is bad. It's obviously not bad, but like there's it, just at a certain point it started it stopped. Like like I don't know, I don't the, the big thing right now is the the Hangman Page thing, right? And I just don't I don't have the connection to him that I think a lot of people do. It's not I like him, but like I'm not like you know dying to see him win the world title or anything. And it really hit me when I was. You know, thinking about like I, I felt nostalgic, right? For I was tweeting about it the other day, like I felt very nostalgic for like you know, the twenty, I mean like the twenty fifteen to like twenty eighteen period of New Japan, or twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen period of New Japan, which I didn't always love in real time, but when I thought about it, it's like it really feels like what we're missing from, you know, when New Japan was the dominant promotion uh, of this circle, I guess you would say, of fandom like our circle of wrestling Twitter and all that, versus today, was like, it really, really felt super important as far as who was IWGP champion, uh, like who was on top of New Japan. And it felt like you had factions and they were like so super into their guy. Like the Naito and L.I.J. people, obviously ride or die for Naito. The Okada people, ride or die for Okada. The Omega elite people were just fucking super ride or die for you know for him and for them and you know it just felt like everybody was constantly like you know maybe some people didn't like that maybe they thought it was too clicky but I really enjoyed that element of it where like everybody was like super into their guy and they were like fuck everybody else I want to see my guy as the champion Uh, I want to you know their reign is the only one that matters that kind of thing and now it just feels like AEW I don't know like everybody likes everything right and it's just kind of like it never feels like you have those kind of clicks or that kind of intra-fan base conflict. And, like, maybe the closest thing you have to it is like, Cody versus anti-Cody people, right? Maybe that's the closest thing you have. Um, But even that really never feels like it gets that heated. And, like, everything instead is about, like, uh, AEW versus WWE. What's the ticket sales like? And, oh, the demo numbers. And, you know, I'm sure some people find that really interesting, but I'm not one of them. And it really, you know, it's really just kind of gotten so boring on like trying to I like following that along on Twitter and everything. So I think that's really hurt my enjoyment of the yeah. promotion and you of know, wrestling I, in general.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um I also have just not fully gone into AEW. I think it's a fine product. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to criticize it, but just have never found it engaging enough to pull me away from everything else I have going on in life regularly and I hadn't thought about what you said about like peak New Japan until you mentioned it the other day and I was like man there is a lot of truth to that like you just don't have that same discussion today anymore about AEW or New Japan or really anywhere Um, and I think it extended beyond just the upper card or main event scene in New Japan as well I mean the way the discourse, you know, the way we used to talk about Ishii or Goto uh, or the junior heavyweight division, like there was just lots of, at least for me, enjoyable conversation going around the product and people had different perspectives, but it was a good conversation. And like you said, it seems like, unfortunately, most of the wrestling discourse now is around AEW versus WWF or WWE, excuse me, uh, at least in our circle. And I mean, Don't get me wrong, like, you know, I'm all for WWF falling to the wayside (laughs) and someone overtaking them. But also, I just don't care about that conversation in the least. It's not something I personally find interesting. It's just so repetitive, too. It's like the same
1: shit every time. I don't know. Like, it's really, it feels way more repetitive to me than any other discussion you've seen in wrestling at this point but.
2: yeah and it's not only repetitive but because of the tv nature of both products you know exactly what discussion point is coming up uh, based off of what day it is it's like oh today's a ratings day gonna you know this is what's everyone's going to be talking about and da, da, da. And it's yeah it's like i guess that conversation's fine the first or second time around but after that what else is there to say in an interesting way
1: yeah so I don't know. That's just that. That's my take, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really surprised that you don't. You did. Do you agree? Given that you also seem like burnt out on current wrestling, but like, you know, the AEW shit and the AEW vs WWE shit, like it's just so, it, like the gravitational pull of it, right? It's just, it just like really feels like it's really tough to escape from. And I think that has a lot of a lot to do with what how I feel about wrestling right now.
2: But yeah, no, I agree, and like you said earlier, I think a lot of people that. Have you know watched some of the f- the promotions? I watched more. Have also stopped watching, or they are now pulled into that as you so at- well put it, the gravitational pull of WWE versus AEW, and so those same people really aren't talking about New Japan or Stardom or other promotions anymore. And it's just, you know, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, and I
1: I mean, it'd be one thing if like like I said, like if AEW just replaced it in a way where like. You had a similar kind of discussion, but it feels like the only things people ever have to say about AEW is like, you know, demo number, demo number, demo number, or like, I don't know, like this ridiculous, like overpraise of everything they do. And I'm not trying to sound like I hate AEW, but like, I don't know, like you will log on and you will see people tweet like, you know, Kenny Omega is the genius of our times. And it's because he like didn't tag in Adam Cole because he's a Ghostbuster and Adam Cole's a ghost. It's like like <laughs> I get the joke, but like why do we have to act like he's fucking doing Mozart? And like, or they'll be like, oh well, this is the greatest uh interview I've ever seen. And it's like MJF like making fun of the fans or right. being stinky or something. It's right. like, I don't know, like everybody is just so happy to have an Amer- Major League American promotion that's not uh WWE. They go so overboard on the praise yeah. level, which it just really, it, that does turn me off too. It's like, yeah. it, it, it feels like there's no room to ever be critical of it. And that element did not exist. If, in, like New Japan 2018, you could be Funny very critical.
2: critical. Yes. Yeah.
1: You could be very critical of it and you get pushed back and people will get mad at you. I mean, I, I know that very well, but it's not like today where if you say anything bad about AEW at all, I mean, you get, immediately <laughs> okay. people will be unfollowing you. And you might get quote treated by someone or they might fucking go off. And it's just like, it really makes the vibe of a, like to me, someone who watch- watches AW and can be a little more critical about my wrestling in general. It really just makes me not want to engage with it. So.
2: Yeah. Well, and like you, I mean, to push your point even further, sometimes it's, You're not, it's not even that you're saying something bad. It's like you said, you're just not praising it enough. So it's like, wow, that was a really enjoyable TV match. You know, I don't know, three and a half stars maybe or something. And people are like, three and a half stars? What do you mean? And it's like, yeah, it was really enjoyable. I liked it. (laughs) But that's not good enough for them. (laughs) Yeah, I don't
1: know. So it's whatever. I'm not trying to piss anybody's cornflakes. If they think, if people think AEW is like the greatest thing of all time, that's cool.
2: Yeah, no, people. I'm a big fan of people enjoying what wrestling they like. Um, But I think it just gets back to what you said. For whatever reason, the discourse has changed and we definitely don't need to explore that today over the past four or five years or so. And it just, I think having, at least with the people I talk to, you know, there's just less fun and interesting wrestling conversations to have in general. And that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah. I I totally agree. But we're here today to talk about old stuff, so let's Yay. get into that. Uh, so this is our second straight year doing a WCW Halloween Havoc Retro Roulette. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Retro Roulette concept, it's very simple. So we pick a theme, which in this case is Halloween Havoc. Uh, I put all the, the number of Halloween Havocs into a randomizer to get six, diff- six different shows. And then from each show, we get a random match. Now, you were not on... Last year for the Halloween Havoc one, it was uh, Gerard, actually. But you were on, I think, for the Super Brawl earlier this year, right? Correct. And then you volunteered for this one before I even... like I had the idea, like, I'll probably do a Halloween Havoc Retro Roulette, and you'd like DM me before I even asked anybody. (laughs) You're like, yeah, John, if you want it, if you're doing that, which I appreciate. It makes my life so much easier having to find a guest.
2: Well, (laughs) I'll just say, to connect the dots, so it was about the week before that or so when I canceled my New Japan subscription, and then I think Maybe the day before I DMG, I was like, "Oh, what the hell I'll watch some old WCW just for giggles. Yeah, and I watched some and I really enjoyed it. I was like, "I wonder if he'll do a Halloween havoc episode this year. I'm going yeah. to message him.
1: Uh, okay. Yeah, so this is Halloween havoc. This is the first time we're doing a repeat one. So um, we're doing for the first time we're doing a second Halloween havoc one. So just to go over the rules a little bit with, with a repeat one. I didn't take the years that we got last time out of the queue. So we could get the same years as last time. It was fine. But obviously, if we got that year again, then it had to be a different match. Makes sense, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So the years we got this time were 1990, 91, 92, 94, 95, and 99. Now, of those years, 90, 91, and 92 are new. We did not get those three last time. Uh, 94, 95, and 99, we did get last time. So those had to be a different match and at least one of them had tried to get the randomizer tried to give you the same match again which is kind of funny. Um the the years that we got last time but didn't get this time were 93, 96 and 98 and so far after doing two of these we've still never gotten uh the original Halloween Havoc in 89, the 97 Halloween Havoc or the year 2000. So of the 12 We've now, had, we've now done nine of the 12. But there's three of them that we've never done, which is uh, 89, 97, and 2000. So uh, so the first show we're doing here is, again, 19, we're going in chronological order here. So we got 1990, which was the second Halloween Havoc. This was uh, October 27th from Chicago, Illinois, the UIC Pavilion, Pavilion, I should say, a claimed crowd of 8,000. And the show did a pay-per-view buy rate of 1.33, which I believe would easily be the highest. Yes, I think so. Uh, I'm just going through to confirm. I don't know why I checked 1999. Obviously, that one wouldn't be it. But yes, 1.33. It would be the highest of the the ones we're covering today. Um, So this show, you know, when I saw the card before I got the random match, obviously... uh, Nothing really stood out here to me. It's like, oh, I really hope I get that one. Maybe Stan Hansen against Lex Luger just because, uh, you know, that was obviously such a rare uh, U.S. match here for Stan Hansen during his one of his very brief runs in, in America. I think that's his last run in America. I think after that 1990, uh, late 1990 WSU run, I think that he never comes back to America. Let me just double check.
2: I believe you're right. He gets
1: chased off because they receive you. Oh, no, no. Okay. He does come. I'm, I'm wrong. He does come back in, in 91 at WCW. Um So that must be when they chase him off uh, when they were trying to get him to just show up with the, uh, what was it? The Desperados or something like the, those comedy cowboys. Do you remember that? <laughs> the Desper- I believe. Yes. Yes.
2: No, I believe that is correct. Yes. Like they were
1: these, they, they were basically this group of cowboys. I think it was Dutch Mantel and these two other goofs who were doing these, these comedy skits when they were looking for Stan Hansen. And the only problem was they didn't tell Stan Hansen. And Stan Hansen didn't want anything. And he parted these goofs. So he, he refused to do the angle. Um, so uh, yeah, 91 is the end of his WW run. It looks like he actually did a, he did a few matches in America in '93 for the most notably for the still Eastern Championship Wrestling. Uh, and then also for the NWA. Uh, the post every NWA, I should say. Oh, no, that's ECW. Okay, that's because ECW is so NWA. So, yeah, those four matches with the NWA, ECW, and then he did one for something called the Catch Wrestling Association, uh, which is Germany, actually. Yeah, that's the CWA. And then another independent U.S. match, uh, a Terry Funk show against the Big Boss Man. Wow, that'd be something. Uh, but, yeah, that's it for him in w- in, in America. After that, the rest of his career, 94 through 2000, he appears exclusively in Japan. Uh, But yeah, there you go. So that would have been fun to get to see one of Stan Hansen's last uh, American runs here. Uh, Other than that, I didn't really care. And the match we did get here was for the NWA United States Tag Team Titles. The Steiner Brothers, Rick and Scott Steiner defeat the Nasty Boys, Brian Knobs, and Jerry Sags in 1524. Uh, so this match has a 7.10 average on Cage Match, and a three and three quarters from the Observer at the time. Uh, it is for WCW's, sh- uh, I guess, kind of short-lived secondary tag titles. The belts lasted from September of '86. Uh, the first champions were the Russians Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev. Uh They defeated the Kansas Jayhawks Bobby Jaggers and Dutch Mantel. Uh, That was a tournament final. I do not know anything about 1986 NWA, so may have mispronounced some names there. But yeah, they held the belts, uh, or the belts lasted until the summer of '92. So the final champions, the final WCW U.S. tag champions at that point, uh, were Dick Slater and the Barbarian. Uh, They defeated Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin uh, on the June 25th episode of Main Event. They made one defense. They beat the team of Flying Brian and the Z Man. Flying Brian the Zeman, It's like the perfect early '90s WCW team. Uh, they beat them on June 26th. The next day, for an episode of Worldwide, and then a little over a month later, July 31st, the champs were stripped and the belts were retired. So that apparently the focus could be on the WCW World Tag Titles instead. I always like the idea of having like a second set of tag titles, especially one that's like not. I mean, obviously New Japan has you know the junior tag belts, but just having like a second. Like a secondary tag belt almost like makes your tag division seem more real or something. Right. It's like, you're not just yeah. fighting over, uh, you know, you know, not just fighting over like the one set of belts, but right. Anyway.
2: No, as a big fan of tag team wrestling, I think having that secondary title helps a lot because it forces you to think about the tag division more and set up more programs. And um, at times I think it worked really well in WCW um, the midnight express Uh, primarily i remember some of their matches and really um just working great matches as the champs um i thought you know having the steiner brothers as the u.s tag champs um you know helped elevate the titles as well um and there were definitely low points for the titles as well as with any title in wcw but i like the idea and wish it could have stuck around longer
1: so the Steiners, they were the twelfth champions in history at this point. They won the belts from the Midnight Express uh August 24th, 1990, at a house show at the Meadowlands uh in New Jersey. So a building I have been to many times. Uh they would actually never lose those titles. Uh they held them all the way up through April 6, 91. They were stripped by the WWE board directors on the episode of uh Pro. So WWE they stripped them because the Steiners won the world tag team titles from the Freebirds on February 8th. Uh, so I guess the idea was a team couldn't hold both. I don't know why it took them uh, almost exactly two months to come to that decision. Uh, very WCW, but there you go. Uh, it ended up being the second longest rain though, in the short history of these belts. It was 225 days. Uh, it only trails the first of three Midnight Express rains, which was uh, 346 days from May 16th, 87, to April 26 eighty-eight. So uh, that's your little bit on the Steiner Brothers uh, title reign here. So Jr. he is dressed here as like, I don't know, a gangster or something.
2: Was he supposed to be like Dick Tracy? Yeah, I I was just thinking 1920s gangster costume play, which I appreciated. So he could still wear the big hat because it's (laughs) Jr. (laughs) And then Paul E. Dangerously is Dracula. And he has these fake fangs he has to
1: take out because he can't keep them in his mouth uh he's like what uh, less than a year or almost exactly a year away from forming the dangerous alliance i guess yes yeah because it's halloween having 91 yeah uh and then tony shivani is dressed up as a phantom of the opera which is that was the funniest one of the three (laughs) i look pretty good
2: yeah i really expected him to take the mask off at some point but at least all the parts (laughs) i saw of the show he was still full costume fully committed to the character uh the steiners went right after the
1: Boys. As soon as they hit the ring. So the two teams brought out to the floor immediately. And then Scott and Jerry Sags fought back to the ring. They end up on the top rope. And Scott escaped a superplex and then hit him with a huge overhead belly-to-belly suplex off the top there. Quite the start. But uh, And then Paul describes the Nasty Boys as, quote, cool enough to win in Atlantic City and tough enough to walk around the South Bronx with the winnings taped to their foreheads. <laughs> that was quite the fucking quote i guess because Atlantic lake city obviously when i grew up it became known already kind of it's like oh it's like the uh the lesser the lesser version of uh vegas like the the rundown one that nobody likes but like in 1990 like this would have been like right before the trump taj mahal opens and like it's still it's still considered kind of a big deal i think um So, you know, it's definitely considered, it's still considered pretty glamorous. So I guess that was the idea there. And plus the the Nasty Boys are like, you know, um, East Coast guys anyway, or New York City guys, but just a great quote, (laughs) really good quote from Paul. Uh, Scott hits a Tiger driver on Sags, still pretty early on here. And then he sets him up with a doomsday device bulldog. The crowd's just going absolutely nuts for the Steiners. Uh, But the referee was distracted Uh, sort of distracted. He almost turned back
2: too soon and then had
1: to turn back around to yell at Rex some more because he was like, oh, I I, I almost saw the bad thing.
2: Yeah, I think he did turn around (laughs) right at the wrong moment and had to give himself whiplash trying to make it look like he did not. But that's besides
1: the point. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so the ref does miss. Knobs coming in with a chair. Uh, He nails Steiner with the chair shot and then gets a two count off of that. And the Nasties then work over Scott for a while. Pretty simple stuff. And this is where the match gets a bit boring for me. Uh, Scott finally comes back with a belly-to-belly suplex. The Nasties cut him back off again and hit a spike piledriver on Scott. But Rick apparently decides turnabout turn about his fair play. And he nails Sags in the back of the steel chair. Uh, so both Scott and Sags are down. And then Sags somehow blades off a chair shot to the back of the head. I have to question the physics on that. I don't really see how that would cause you a cut on the front of your head, but okay. Uh and then he manages to tag out the knobs, who puts Scott in a very exciting bear hug. And the nasties just keep cutting Scott off every time he finally looks like he's gonna make the hot tag. Um I really like the New Japan style 15 minutes gone by call from the ring announcer. Like AEW, they copy a lot of WW stuff. They should copy that. Because remember the when they did the uh, the Brian Danielson versus Kenny Omega match, the ring announcer really did a terrible job keeping people updated on the mm-hmm. time limit. So, uh, like you just have to do it in every match, otherwise it's very <laughs> obvious which matches are going to go to the time limit because it's the only ones you're doing it in. Uh, Scott finally comes back with a very sloppy clothesline. He makes the hot tag to Rick. Rick cleans house with some much better clotheslines. It's a belly to belly suplex on sags. It breaks down to a four-man brawl. The Nasty Boys take over again. They toss both stars to the floor, but then they celebrate a little early. Rick comes off the top with a double clothesline to both nasties, and they cut Rick right back off again. Uh, and this is where the match really started to feel a bit disjointed to me. They go back to the outside. They slam Scott out there. They keep working over Rick. Jr. is complaining endlessly about the ref not getting one of the Nasty Boys out of the ring. So some things never change, I guess. Uh, Scott and Rick finally come back. They separate the Nasties. Uh, They send Sags to the outside. And then Scott hits a very sloppy Frankensteiner that damn near kills Sags, like drops him directly down under his head. And that is the pin. Uh, The Nasties then attack them after the bell, nail them with the belts, uh, and then we'll get into the post-match after. But I don't know what... What do you think of the match itself? I thought, you know, it started out so good that almost where it went from there felt like a massive disappointment to me. Like it's certainly not a bad match, but it looked like it was going to be awesome from the start, and then just kind of slowed down a lot and became very disjointed towards the end and then just ended out of nowhere. So I only went three stars in this overall. It was fine, but it started out so hot that I was hoping for more. but uh, with the with the batch of matches we got here it's still end up being my favorite match, I think, but uh, there you go. Oh no, I like one match better. I'm sorry. Did yeah, have one match better.
2: Yeah, so uh, I'll just say up front, I definitely enjoyed this match more than you. Uh, I went in with really low expectations. This was not one of the nasty boys matches that I remembered actually enjoying from their couple of WCW runs. Um, just I believe I probably watched this one match once, really hadn't thought about it since. and um I really enjoyed it. And I think the hot start, as you said, was just absolutely amazing. The crowd was already hot for the Steiners when they came out and had starting to match like that, just really pulled the uh, audience in. Um, The Nasty Boys control segment was definitely not the most exciting, but I appreciate that they really focused on isolating uh, Scott Steiner and really working on his lower back, even when the moves themselves weren't the most inspiring um although they did mix in a couple of good moves along with abdominal stretches and things like that um, and it did get disjointed at the end but for me it was just kind of a enjoyable mixture of a typical southern tag match with more of a chaotic brawling nature and so maybe that put me in a more forgiving mood along with my uh low expectations going into it um And then Rick, um, just to give him some credit too, not the biggest Rick Steiner fan, um, but he was fantastic the uh, the few times he was in the ring. The Steiner lines he delivered were absolutely vicious. His top rope double clothesline looked great. The Doomsday Bulldog from both Steiners looked fantastic. I mean, they were really laying it in to the Nasty Boys. Reminded me of some of their New Japan stuff from close to the same time. I mean just the way they were laying in the offense, not necessarily saying the entire match structure or anything. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed it and gave it four stars. And to me, it was actually a great match and a very pleasant surprise. Yeah, you had it much higher than me. Wow. Uh, I had it more than the cage match, people, more than Dave. Maybe (laughs) I was just in a good mood when I watched this one, but I truly enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I came in below both of those, so. Uh, so the post-match, very interesting stuff here. So I, this is, I believe, the home video version, which cuts some stuff. So we cut directly from the Nasties attacking him after the bell and nail they with the title belts too. Scott giving an interview afterward, but then he gets attacked by Jerry Sags dressed as a concession worker. <laughs> that was really fucking funny. And the Nasties beat him up again. Uh, so this looks like the start of a big hot feud, right? It was supposed to be. It, right. <laughs> but in true WWE fashion, the Nasty Boys, despite being in this huge, hot feud with this hot young tag team that WWE pushed endlessly, were not under contract. Uh, what the fuck? So they lost a blow off cage match at a house show in Atlanta on November 22nd. Uh, they appeared on a taping of Pro on December 8th, beating a pair of jobbers and then they were debuting on WWF Superstars uh, taping three days later on December 11th. Heck of a job as always, WCW. How do you not have these guys under contract before you start this big hot feud? Yeah, you know, it makes... Classic WCW. Right, makes zero sense.
2: Um, and it seemed like it was going to be a great feud, uh, which is crazy to say for a Nasty Boys feud, but this match was great. The post-match angle, as you said, I'm so glad you talked about it, was fantastic. Um, he <laughs> really,
1: really did look like a concession worker. Right. I, I, was, I, was like,
2: no, I was like, why did he sl- weirdly have a concession worker framed on the side of this? <laughs> and then he turns around with the bad beard and the outfit, and you're like, oh, fantastic. This is great. <laughs> um. Yeah. And then, yeah, so it was a great post-match attack, uh, and then, like you said, bye-bye, Nasty Boys, just a couple months later, and that was that, unfortunately. Uh,
1: the next show we got here was Halloween Havoc 91, uh, October 27th, 91, from the UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee. A claimed attendance of 8,900. Uh, this did a pay-view-buy rate of 0.8. Now, there's really nothing on the show that I'm like, damn! I wish we'd gotten that. I'm very happy we didn't get the Chamber of Horrors because it's really horrible, and there's really not much to say about it besides it's horrible. Uh, th- I mean, if you look at this card, there is r- this is like the near the bottom of WCW. I mean, they've they've run Rick Flair out of town. Um, you know, he's with the WWF now, and the 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 dangerous alliance stuff that's gonna that's gonna like turn the company around. Like, it really just starts on this show. So, obviously, you know, the the uh, the promo from Pauly Dangerous on the show is very classic. Uh, the debut of Rick Rude as the Halloween Phantom is classic. But that's a minute and 27 second match. I mean, it's not anything special to match. But, like, as far as, like, you know, that would kind of save the company in a 92. But, like, you know, I mean, make the company a lot more watchable again at least. But it obviously has almost it has no effect on this show. So this show is still filled with like you know Van Hammer winning a squash in a minute and thirteen seconds. The squash match we got here, which was Bill Kazmier beating Oz in three fifty nine. I mean that's the kind of shit that's on this show. Um, you know maybe would have been fine. Maybe would have been fun to get Austin versus Dustin Rhodes, the TV title. They went to a fifteen minute draw. Uh, but like you know this the main event is you know Lex Luger against Ron Simmons, in a two out of three falls match. I mean whoop de do. And the semi-main is the Enforcers, Arn Anderson and Larry Zabisco, defending the WCW World Tag Team titles against the WCW Patriots, Firebreaker Chip and Todd Champion.
2: I'm so Uh, glad you mentioned the semi-main as well, because I was (laughs) going to have to if you did it.
1: They look like fucking strippers. They look like, you know, strippers in like a, a, a soldier and a fucking fireman outfit. I mean, they were really horrible. Um... And like, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else to say about that. I mean, like the, weren't they the ones who were like announced as their hometown was like WW special forces or something, which, yes. how is that a hometown? <laughs> no. What, is that? what does that even mean? Why does WCW have an army? Are they trying to take over the world or something? They understand. What the fuck? It's like private armies are for villains in James Bond movies. What are you guys doing? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it would have been kind of cool, I guess, maybe to get a uh, the light heavyweight title match, flying Brian against Richard Morton with Alexandra York from the York Foundation, because she had a, a computer that told her how to tell her wrestlers how to win, and, the, and yet the wrestlers never won. Uh, if you don't know who Alexandra York is, by the way, it's Terry Reynolds, so makes it even funnier. But yeah, just a lot of 1991, WWE, not very good. Uh, the Dangerous Alliance would turn things around in '92, but yeah. Uh, anything you want to mention on this show before I get into the match we actually got?
2: I mean, I can't help but say I wouldn't have minded uh, talking about the Chamber of Horrors match. I know you (laughs) think there's nothing to talk about it, but I think it's very, it's just so WCW um, and not in as negative of a way as most so WCW is. And to be honest with how humdrum most of the rest of the show is, I think it sadly probably was the highlight of this particular event. Um, But yeah, outside of that, I think there have been a couple of other matches that would have been somewhat fun to watch. You named them already, but um, yeah, I don't think there was any hope for a big winner to come out of this draw.
1: So Oz, of course, is Kevin Nash. So now, okay, he started out his career just barely over a year earlier in WCW. Uh, that was his first wrestling of any kind, according to Cage Match at least. So he started out as Master Blaster Steel, uh, as one half of the Master Blasters. Now the original Master Blaster, original Master Blasters was Nash and some guy named Corey Pendervis, who was Master Blaster Iron. Uh, he he retired after doing all of seven matches with Nash. Apparently that was it for him. Uh, so then he was replaced by Al Green, who did go on to a you know somewhat longer career. And, you know, Al Green was Master Blaster Blade. Remember, they, they brought Al Green to face Nash in like 1998 or something. And they were like, oh, it's Nash's former partner. And I'm like, who the fuck would even remember that? <laughs> it was very weird. But yes, Al Green, Master Blaster Blade. And that was the rest of the Master Blaster run. That wasn't that long, though. Only September 1990 until March 91. Now, towards the end of that run, Nash also briefly appeared as Dr. X. I was like, what the fuck is that gimmick? Unfortunately... I don't
2: remember that one at all, actually. So um,
1: so the reason why I don't remember it, there's no photos or anything because it only happened on on some house shows in March and April of <laughs> okay. 91. So it was like, it was not even really between the Master Blaster and Oz because he was also appearing as Master Blaster at the same time on, on some house shows and like even on TV and stuff. But yeah, Dr. X only happened on house shows in, on uh, according to Cage Match. So... I would love to see Kevin Nash's Dr. X. If you were there in March or (laughs) April of 1991, you have to see something no one else on the earth ever got to see. But yes, Dr. X. That was also Nash. And then he was repackaged as the great and powerful Oz in May of 1991. Now, if you've never seen like peak Oz, this is not it. Because originally he had this like, (laughs) he had the giant mask and like the fucking uh the the grand wizard right as his manager i think they they called him which is funny because there already was a grand wizard of wrestling right um but yeah the gimmick at this point it barely exists i mean he is just a guy in green pants with like weird hair
2: right the great and powerful part had been taken away from the character (laughs) at this point um and uh, yeah, the entrance was stripped down from the entourage and the light show and the fog machine. Too. He is a jobber in green pants at this point. That is yeah. it. And so, all well of it. Been, <laughs> I was just gonna say, he might as well have been introduced as and in the other corner. Uh, just <laughs> yeah, yeah. So,
1: you know, he does get he gets an entrance here, but I mean, it's just nothing. I mean, he just he just comes out. So, yeah, I mean, this is towards the end of the gimmick, he's gonna get repackaged as Vinny Vegas. Uh, January 21st, 92. And he will keep that gimmick for the rest of his WWE career and then finally departs the company in June of 93 and then debuts as Shawn Michaels' bodyguard, Diesel. You know, right around the same time. I mean, his first official match is Diesel is August 13th, but I think he was on TV for weeks before that. So uh, the other guy here, Bill Kazmier, probably a name that's not as familiar to people as Kevin Nash. So he was like a really, really accomplished powerlifter. Uh-huh. um he won a lot of world's strongest man's contests. i mean he won the world's strongest man uh three straight years from 80 through 82 uh he tried out for football in the 80s and didn't make it and he basically was just this big strong guy and you know i saw i think there was a quote i read that like he was the third strongest man who ever lived or something behind mark henry and then some other guy i'd never heard of so i didn't write down the other guy's name i'm sorry to that man but yeah, uh, he started in professional wrestling with Stampede in 1986 and 87. He got a WWF tryout match in 86, but he was not signed. And then he had a long gap in his pro wrestling career. He competed in a lot more strongman tournaments and did more powerlifting. He finally returned to wrestling with, of all things, Fighting Network Rings in May 1991. He appeared on the very first show in history with the Akira Maeda-led uh, UWF Newborn UWF offshoot. Now, to talk about the Patreon, I went into a lot of detail on the Patreon uh, and the Tokyo Dome series on all the and how the Newborn UWF split and all the different bucket offshoots. Uh, the Newborn UWF is the second UWF, so all the different offshoots that came from it: UWF I, uh, Rings, um, God Fujiwara Gumi, and Fujiwara Gumi would eventually birth Pancrase and Rings. You know, started out here when 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 Bill Cashmere appeared. Rings was still a, you know, just another shoot style wrestling company, like a UWF type company. But within a few years, uh, I believe four or five years, Rings would become a legitimate MMA company. So, you know, they, they were doing actual shoot fights. But yeah, so Casimir was on the semi main event of the very, very first Rings show. He lost to a guy named Chris Dolman, who would end up being a Rings regular for the next five years or so. And then a few months after that Rings appearance, he debuted in WWE as Rick Steiner's replacement partner uh, in august of 91 uh while his brother scott was out for about four months of an injury uh i couldn't find any details on the exact injury but it looks like he was only about only out for about june 15th until october in fact his return match was the infamous chamber of horrors match on this very show so talk about a return match it's like yeah scott you're back <laughs> get in the ring get in the chamber of horrors uh, but yeah Kashmir and rick they went all the way to the finals of the of a tournament to name the new World Tag Team Champions after Scott and uh, Rick were stripped of the titles due to Scott's injury. They lost to the Enforcers of Art Anderson Larry Zbysko. That was September 5th at uh, Clash 16, Fall brawl. And then Kazmir got some World Heavyweight title shots against Lex Luger during the fall of 91. Only at house shows, though. And after this, he wrapped up his WWE career, teaming with, of all people, Jushin Thunder Liger in the Lethal Lottery at Starrcade. Uh, they they did win that match. They moved on to the Battle Bowl, which was like all the Lethal Lottery winning teams and competed in Battle Bowl, uh, the Battle World at the end. And Sting won that to set up Sting taking the world title from Lex Luger at Super Brawl, which that we covered that match, didn't we? Sting beating Luger?
2: Did we get that one? Now I'm trying to remember. I think I we might have. We... Let's say yes. Someone uh, can correct us if we're wrong.
1: <laughs> but yeah, maybe Liger liked him because then somehow Kazmir got booked on the January 4th, 92 Tokyo Dome show for New Japan against Shinya Hashimoto. And he, of Have course, lost. Have you ever lost. seen that
2: match out of curiosity? I've never seen
1: it. Why? Is it really good?
2: Oh, no. It's the by far the worst Hashimoto match I've oh. <laughs> ever seen. Uh, all due to his opponent, to be fair to him. And yeah, then, he was He was not good. Yeah. And then after Hashimoto won with his DDT, as soon as he got off of him for the cover, Kazmire just popped right back up and exited the ring like nothing well, happened. He had to protect his career, but that ended up being his last pro wrestling match ever. Uh, so there
1: you go. He never wrestled again after losing the Hashimoto. Uh, but yeah, that's and they were going to talk about the Tokyo Dome during this match, which is kind of funny. But yeah, this match here, Oz and Kazmir, Um, So in what's going to become a theme, they reuse the exact same spooky house graphic from 1990 for the opening of the 91 Halloween <laughs> Havoc, just with different wrestlers. Gotta save over. money where you can. Uh, Nash, he looks just fucking thrilled to be walking out here in his green robe. Uh, <laughs> Bill Casmere, he is introduced as the world's strongest human being instead of man. I don't know if that was a royalties thing or a political correctness thing. I have no idea. I mean, WCB did a lot of weird shit in the early 90s, like where it couldn't be an inter- a foreign object had to be an international object. So I don't know. Uh, and then because WCW, Bill Casimir carries a giant globe to the ring. Masters of subtlety, this WCW. It was <laughs> really something. Uh, according to Tony, this was supposed to be Casmere versus Cactus Jack. No explanation for why it was changed, but there you go. Uh, to, I think it wasn't oh, because of Chamber Fours.
2: Yeah, he was a last minute substitute into the I Chamber Fours match. Who, was he, who did he substitute was. for? I wonder. I can't, because I think there was multiple <laughs> substitutes for the Game of Forest match like right before it aired on WCW. So Absolutely. I'm not going to try to rehash that, but I'm pretty sure he was one of the last minute subs. Uh, so the crowd, the, the crowd could not give less of
1: a fuck about these two giant men fighting. They don't care that Kazimir is the strongest man in the world. They don't care that Oz is seven feet tall and a wizard. They just sit there Fucking sitting on their hands. I mean, I can't say this match is very exciting. It was pretty horrible, but like, I would not, I was not expecting the crowd to be this dead. They didn't care at all. Uh, match is very bad. They can't even brawl into the corner correctly. They're just very slow, very clunky, don't work together well at all. Uh, probably not a good idea to put two guys who are this green in the ring together, but uh, I guess there's only four minutes. But yeah, the announcers are so entertained by this match. They spend a while talking about how Oz was just wrestling in Japan. I believe he had just lost to Hashimoto too, right? That would have been 90. 90- I believe so, yes. Yeah, he, there's a famous match for Oz Hashimoto, I think from Yokohama Arena, where Hashimoto... I, that actually, did a, if, if I remember correctly, that did a lot to help get Hashimoto over, which is hilarious because obviously beating Oz really meant nothing at this point. I mean, he was a joke. But to, to New Japan fans, I guess all they saw was... Um, you know, Hashimoto against this seven foot tall American superstar and Hashimoto beat him pretty easily. And that, that helped him get over. Apparently that's, that's the story I always heard. Uh, but yeah, so they, they're talking, the announcers here, they're just talking about how Oz was wrestling in Japan and they're saying, oh, he's going back in January. And they talk about how New Japan put their tickets on sale for their January 4th Tokyo Dome show and already sold $1.5 million worth of tickets. Uh, so really, putting over New Japan here for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, no, I was
2: really impressed by how much they were putting over New <laughs> yeah. Japan.
1: There, there's like I felt like there's this undercurrent of, well, boy, things are going great over there, not here, but uh, <laughs> that's what it felt like. Uh, that of course would be the first January fourth dome show in history. It's not the first dome show ever. Uh, you know, it's the first January fourth one because the first dome show was April twenty fourth, eighty nine, uh, also from New Japan. But yeah, that January 4th, 92 Dome show they're talking about here is the uh, Ricky Choshu, Tatsumi Fujinami original double gold dash for the IWGP Heavyweight and Greatest 18 Club that, uh, of course, we covered on the Patreon. Uh, Meanwhile, though, Lex Luger uh, would beat Masio Otono to retain the WWE title in the semi-main, and there were other WWE wrestlers on that card, too. Uh, The match here, Kaz gets Oz up in the torture rack and Oz quickly submits. It's fucking sucked. Uh, It was short. It's really about the only positive thing you can say about it. I went dud on this one.
2: So I will be saving my dud for a match coming up later. Oh, I have Um, multiple duds. (laughs) (laughs) Multiple multiple duds to give out. Oh, man. Uh, For this one, I will say, um, yeah, this was probably the most dead I've seen a WCW crowd from this era. It was almost unbelievable how quiet they were just to echo what you said earlier um a couple of other positives i will spot out or point out was for how brutal a lot of their spots were they actually worked a pretty nice belly to back suplex spot out of the corner by nash so Mm, that's fair yep that was something and then i was really surprised to see kazmire skin the cat back into the ring at one point so i gave a quarter of a star for those (laughs) two spots (laughs) and i am ready to move on
1: (laughs) uh Halloween Havoc 1992 is up next, the Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal show. Uh, and yes, we got 90, and 92 all in a row. It happens, what do you want me to tell you? Uh, <laughs> this was October 25th, 92, from the Philadelphia Civic Center, uh, where they claimed attendance of 7,000 and a pay-per-view-buy rate of 0. 0.9. Because this, I mean, people were really into that sting. Uh, Jake Roberts, Spin the de- spin the Wheel, Make the Deal thing. Now, in WCW's Infinite Wisdom, they, I think... I don't know if the story. I, I've heard some people say they didn't gimmick the wheel; they let it be really, you know, really a uh, shoot random, or that they just thought they, they didn't want to give away a bigger match. They just they gimmicked it and had it land on the the most boring one, which yes, they had it land on a coal miner's glove match, uh, which is just a, a fucking glove on a pole, and Sting would beat him in ten thirty four to win that match. Because like apparently, I don't I don't see how theory two could have been it because like apparently they already knew they weren't going to use Jake Roberts again. Like he was just you know so out of it at this point that uh you know they they just weren't gonna use him, so I don't know it was uh it's weird think, that they were saving it, but
2: yeah I think it was a weird combination i despite how poor how well known w c w is making for making poor decisions at any point during its run, I just cannot genuinely believe that they used a non gimmicked uh, wheel for this in the first place. <laughs> and so I think maybe it was just they're they were down on Roberts anyways, and they're like, maybe they did something stupid, like, we'll punish him then on his way out by putting him in a bad match that won't even <laughs> succeed. Because that's more W C W Right. That's more <laughs> WCW's type of stupidity than yeah. using an ungimmicked wheel, maybe. Um
1: but yeah, I mean this is another show where like, I mean, there's a Ricky Steam versus Fly and Brian match. I guess I would have been cool to get, but I mean
0: I only Yeah, that's a minutes. fun little match I remember. It's
2: yeah, it's nothing major, but it's a fun match where Pillman was working more heel and Steamboat was in there with someone that had a quickness advantage, which you didn't always see. So I do remember enjoying that.
1: Um there's a Rick Rude and Maschio Chono match that's I remember is quite boring actually, but it would have been fun just to see Chono. Um but yeah, I don't know. The uh oh my my Alexa thing is telling me about a refund. Thank you uh but yeah i mean you know it's a it's not a great show so i mean there really isn't that many options and we probably got one of the better matches actually so the match we got was the wcw u.s heavyweight title no dq big van vader not the champion We'll get into that in a second defending his not title against nikita volkov or nikita kolov i should say nikita kolov successfully in 11 35 so oh boy where to start with this first of all the same spooky house intro again. What? <laughs> Three years in a row. Uh, it finally doesn't open Halloween Havoc '93 though, because that's the infamous uh werewolf Tony Shimani mini movie, which uh you know we don't we talked about that last year. I have to talk about that again. <laughs> but yeah, uh the same fucking spooky house crafting again. Uh, hey, so rude kept
2: updating the ghost what else do you want from them
1: yeah that's it i guess so rude has been u.s champion for almost a year at this point he won the belt uh soon after his debut at last year's halloween havoc that was where the infamous uh wcw halloween phantom uh defeated z-man then unmasked as rick rude at the start, of the, the start of the dangerous alliance yeah he beat sting on november 19th 91 uh at Clash of Champions 17 he would never lose the title. He would just be stripped of it at the end of '92 after suffering an injury. That's not the career-ending injury. The career-ending injury uh, came in May of '93 in an NWA World Title match when he he was wrestling Sting at Wrestling Dontaku uh, for New Japan the Fukuoka Dome, and he landed like on the corner of the elevated rampway. You know the, the elevated ramp they always have at New Japan shows. Like he landed on the corner of it, taking a back body drop from Sting and severely injured his back. So I guess very similar to what happened with uh, Shawn Michaels in the casket in 98. Um, But yeah, Dustin Rhodes would go on to become the next US champion. He would also be stripped of the title after he and Rick Rude had a bunch of title matches with uh, inconclusive finishes in 93. And that made two straight champions and never lost the belt in the ring. But Then Dustin would get the belt back after being stripped of it anyway. So I don't know what the point of it was really. Uh, But to make things even more confusing here, Big Van Vader is filling in for Rick Rude. so. Basically, Bill Watts, who was who was shoot-running WCW at the time, he would uh, lose that jab towards the end of 92 due to uh, comments he made in the Pro Wrestling Torch. Uh, you remember that whole thing, right, with the interview? With, oh, yes. Uh... Yeah,
2: he That's basically absolutely said... Absolutely yeah. brutal. Um, the yeah. open racism spouted by him. yeah, uh, Just, yeah.
1: And, you know, Rude is basically... The, so Watts comes out and says, basically, Rude is challenging Chona over the NWA title later in the night. He was originally going, supposed to have to wrestle two matches here, also defend the U.S. title uh, against, um, you know, against Nikita Koloff, but Paulie dangerously and his evil lawyers got some kind of injunction to let Vader defend the U.S. title in his place.
2: Okay. I mean, sure, whatever.
1: Very well, confusing, which, very weird storyline.
2: It, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. And also, I mean, it's low on the grand scale of things for WCW, but the fact that they were hyping it in advance as you know here's this really hated heel we've been building super strong for over a year now and or for exactly a year and you'll have to you know he'll have to wrestle twice in one night like this is his comeuppance and then on the pay-per-view it's like oh never mind he outsmarted us he's only (laughs) having to
1: wrestle once he gets to have somebody else
2: defend his title sure and not just someone else but vader (laughs)
1: Yeah, Vader, who's, like, the unbeatable monster at this point. He's, like, right in between two world title reigns. Like, Vader, uh, he lost he lost the world title to Ron Simmons on an episode of Main Event the start of August, and he would win the belt back from Simmons almost exactly two months after this, uh, a house show in Baltimore on December 30th. So, like, you know, he's just been world champion. He's gonna be world champion again soon. I mean, this is, like, peak Vader. And he gets to come, and Rue gets to get him to defend this title. Uh, so Kolop is in his uh one of his final runs here, is now residing in the US the United States of America period. He is so popular. I always forget mm-hmm. like how over as a face the now yeah. residing in the USA period was. I mean, the crowd fucking loves him. Uh yeah. they they were like they are very into this Russian man. So Way yeah, he's to go for those, not being I, xenophobic, 1992 WCW class, I guess. Right, <laughs> I yeah. The, for the couple,
2: <laughs> his couple face runs with WCW, he always got great crowd support, surprisingly enough. And it, he's just one of those wrestlers, I think his career ended just a little too early for a lot of today's fans to remember just how over he was. Yeah. Both as a heel and a face.
1: So Vader, uh, he mauls Koloff uh, early on with his punches in the corner. It's this huge clothesline that Koloff takes a great flip bump for, and they fight out to the floor. Vader drops Koloff on the railing, nails him with a chair. Some fan throws a beer at Vader as he's, like, turning around. It bounces right off of him. I'm not even sure he noticed. Just kind of funny. He just doesn't react at all. So that was kind of funny.
2: Yeah, but I did appreciate Jesse pointing out how stupid that fan was because <laughs> Vader might kick his ass later.
1: <laughs> uh, Koloff tries to sunset flip Vader back into the ring, but Vader simply hits the big avalanche down onto him. Looks like it killed him. Koloff selling in this match was really good. Like he's looking, he's selling like he is in there with a monster and cannot do anything. Just really, really good selling here. Like he's, he's selling like he's getting killed in every move. Uh, Vader splashes Koloff off the second rope. Koloff just barely kicks out. Then we get a very long headlock from Vader. Uh, Koloff finally stands up still in the headlock, tries to hit a backdrop suplex on him. Vader, like, won't go up, and they sort of just, like, awkwardly land back on the mat, almost like Koloff's head gets snapped. Looks looked weird and kind of bad. It does break the headlock, uh, and then Koloff just barely gets Vader up for a front suplex. That didn't look very good either. And then Koloff finally gets some actual offense, including a big body slam for a two-count. They end up on the outside again. Koloff misses the Russian, the Russian sickle lariat, uh, with Vader up against the post, and Koloff uh, crashes into it hard with his arm instead. And then back in the ring, Vader finishes Koloff off without that much trouble, drops a few elbows, and hits the big powerbomb for the win. Uh, so this was another match that started out really hot, just like Sinners and uh, Nasty Boys for me, but just couldn't quite maintain that momentum. Uh, I thought it was going to be a really fun power battle and vader beating the shit out of koloff indeed was a lot of fun but that headlock felt like it went on forever koloff's comeback was like weird and clunky almost looked like vader's being like uncooperative or something at first uh the the powerbomb to end it was great though so i don't know i went three and a quarter i thought it was pretty good i thought vader killing him at the start was a lot of fun and even the parts that like weren't great weren't horrible or anything so you know this ended up being my match of the show basically (laughs) so i i liked it but uh you know, it's another match where like it started off like it was gonna be really good and ended up just being pretty good. So
0: everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6.
2: Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: Yeah, no, um, I enjoyed this match as well. I think you captured the essence of it really well. Um, I will say this does start, start a trend for matches we have the rest of the night where. There's a momentum change where one of the wrestlers accidentally hits the ring post outside of the ring while trying to either lariat or punch or chop their opponent. Um, Yeah. I think the clunkiness at the end, if I'm remembering correctly, which is sometimes a question these days, I'm pretty sure Nikita legit injured his neck in this match, um, which caused this to be his last televised match, I think. And he probably retired shortly after if i'm remembering everything correctly so i thought the beginning was great um their strikes and like you said nikita's selling to get over just how dangerous vader was but he him having just enough power and speed to kind of hang in there but then unfortunately the match did get a little clunky the power bomb at the end looked vicious but um, assuming my memory is right about the neck injury, I think also Nikita getting dumped on his shoulder and neck at that point probably did not feel great. Um, but yeah, it was probably my second best match of the night behind the Nasty Boy Steiners match earlier. And I also had a three and a quarter.
1: There you go. Uh, oh, we had the exact same rating finally. There you go. Uh, so the. Sorry, I'm just responding to something from work because I'm doing this on my work day. Uh but yeah, so there there you go. That's that match. Um anything else to say about that match really quickly before we move on to the next year's.
2: Um, I'm just glad we had a chance to talk about Nikita and Vader. It wasn't a great match, but compared to um what we have coming, you know, it was very enjoyable.
1: <laughs> yes, true. Uh so then we move on to ninety-four. That's the next one we got here, October twenty-third, ninety-four, from the Joe Lewis arena in Detroit, Michigan. Uh this did an 0.97 buy rate. Uh, so a little bit of higher buy right here in the Hogan era and Hogan, uh, of course, would made event against Ric Flair at a cage match. I'm, I'm sad we didn't get that. Cause that has a four and a quarter from Dave, only a 6.74 from cage match. I don't remember it at all. So it would have been fun. I, I know I've seen it, but I don't remember it at all. So it would have been fun to see, you know, who was right there. Is, is it, uh, is it Dave really overrated at the time? Uh, you know, what, what's the deal? Um, but yeah, I don't know. What you, that would have been, that would have been fun to get, I guess. Yeah,
2: that was the Mr. T guest referee match, if I'm I yeah, believe correct. Yeah. yeah, I think that was a fairly fun match. I mean, yeah, I have not probably seen it since the '90s, but so most of those Hogan Flair matches in his initial run were fun enough. I don't think any of them were great, from how I remember them. But you know, three and a half ish stars, maybe reflecting back. Um, but they also kind of had the diminishing returns of just Hogan's push becoming obvious and Flair just not having a chance in any of them. And so the introduced things like the retirement step and still just Flair loses. Uh, there you go.
1: So the Halloween Havoc 94, I mean, that. so, so when Flair retires, right, he comes back as like what in drag, right. Is that his next appearance when he, appears in you know dressed as a woman at a uncensored 95 i think
2: that sounds right yes yeah
1: during the vader hogan strat match so
2: odd obviously yes i mean <laughs> but
1: yeah the match we got here was dustin rhodes beating Arn anderson uh with colonel robert parker and meng in 950 uh it got a three and a quarter from the observer a 6.18 on cage match and both of those, I thought, were a little high, as I'll get to in a second. Uh, so this match came about as a result of a feud when Dustin Rhodes, he's up against Colonel Robert Parker's stud stable. And he's like, I know who I should team with, Arn Anderson. Anderson, of course, was like, uh, no. He turns on him uh, in July at Bash of the Beach. I mean, he even told
2: him, you're going yeah, to get gonna say, the This old- is the one yeah, where Anderson basically warns him to his face, like... I will do this, but I'm going to turn on you and kick your ass. <laughs> and yeah, he's like, that's what he, he
1: flat out tells him you're going to get the old Arn Anderson who would uh, kick his own mother for a dollar or something. And, Arn, and Dustin's like, sign me up. That sounds great. I'm like, what are you, t- you moron? Uh, the final payoff for this though would be Dustin bringing in his daddy, uh, Dusty Rhodes, for tag matches against the Stud Stable in November. So, uh, the the funniest part of the match is right at the start where Arn keeps repeatedly accusing Dustin Rhodes of pulling his uh, almost non-existent hair, which finally gets a very exasperated Dustin to explode with, uh, come on, referee, pull on his damn hair. was <laughs> pretty funny when the ref actually does try to warn him. Uh, to be honest, I just found this match pretty boring. Arn beats Dustin down for what felt like ages, and then Arn nearly pins Dustin holding onto the ropes on a sunset flip. The referee kicks him, or catches him and kicks his arms away. And then Dustin just kind of lays on him for the finish while he's arguing with the ref. Kind of a stupid finish to boot. Uh, I don't know. I I mean, I normally like both guys, you know, but this match really did nothing for me. With the stupid finish, I actually think it's a little below average. So, you know, I barely have any notes because there wasn't anything to it to me. Uh, I went two and a quarter. Didn't even feel like much of a grudge match to me either after Arn turned on him. Uh, I mean, I guess it wasn't really the low off since, uh, you know, Arn lays him out afterwards which sets up all those tags with Dusty and Dustin, but... I just wasn't into this at all. I don't know.
2: Yeah, well, and just to add to the context as well, I don't think the crowd was that into it either, and I think a part of weirdness was um, they had the War Games match before this as well, the Stud Stable versus Dustin Rhodes and Dusty, right? I think I'm remembering that, right, at Fall Brawl? Oh, you're right. I guess that already happened, yeah. Right, and that was like, so that should have been the feud blow-off. I mean, it's War Games. And then Dustin and um, Arn were just back out at the next pay-per-view wrestling a singles match with no stipulations. And so I think that kind of hurt just the feel and the flow of the match as well. Um, I did enjoy a lot of Arn's work in the match, like a lot of the small things he was doing. I thought he showed some good familiarity with Dustin and showing that I guess it was a long-term feud and, you know, baiting Dustin in a couple times and outsmarting him. And just the way he moved around the ring in general. But to me it felt like um more of like a really good, like or maybe not really good, but a really fun Saturday night's main event style match than a pay-per-view match of a supposedly really hot feud. Um Dustin did take one, I thought, a really good bump over the top rope when he charged at Arn at one point and Arn ducked out of the way. That was, you know, good for him on that. Um The finish, though, definitely came off clunkier than it should have. Um, And again, it was just quick. And then immediately, you know, Arn attacked afterwards to extend the feud again after they'd had a War war Games match already the previous month. So um, just felt like a lot of spinning the wheels. Um, And so, yeah, I gave two and three quarter stars. So a little bit higher than you, mostly for some of Arn's work in the match, but definitely not anything great.
1: There you go. Uh, you know, just not a not anything I'm really I was that into either. So, uh, a lot more to talk about though, the following year, which was Halloween Havoc 1995, uh, back at the Joe Louis Arena from Detroit, Michigan, 13,000 people, and o- only an 0.6 buy rate though. But this was like, I mean, this is kind of a historic show because yes. in a lot of ways it's kind of the start of like the Crash TV era almost. Like it's it's kind of Russo before Russo with all the fucking wacky turns and and twists and turns here.
2: That's a good way of putting it that I hadn't thought of before. I just thought of it as like Hogan desperation to be over and relevant, but you're (laughs) right. It it did take a lot of elements of uh, what Russo would become well known for later.
1: Now I will say the the
2: dark side Hogan thing, I forgot how well it worked. Like he was popular here. I don't know. I guess the the crowd was definitely behind him, which I did not expect going in. Uh, My memory did not retain that.
1: Because they have to turn him heel, obviously, in ninety six because the crowd is no longer with him. And you know, you can go back and watch that stuff in ninety six, the Super Brawl and everything else and see, you know, just how much the crowd is not with him. But you know, this is not that not, not that long before that. And the crowd is still with the mayor. So yeah, it is it
2: was... I mean maybe it was the finish of this match that finally killed it. Who
1: knows? <laughs> but yeah, the Dark Side Hogan thing was it was kind of over. So um but yeah so we got the main event here which was the giant defeating the Hulk Hogan by DQ in 1657. The WCW World Heavyweight title title could change hands via DQ match, which was not known at the time, as we'll get into. Very convoluted. Uh, I wish we had gotten Sabu versus Jerry Lynn, because that would have been a real what the fuck. (laughs) Uh, I should have mentioned, by the way, so last 94 was the first show we got last time. So the last time we did 94, we got Vader versus the Guardian Angel. And for 95, the last time we got Ming against Lex Luger, which really wasn't very good either. So, And that went 13 minutes somehow, so yikes. Uh, but yeah, I wish we had gotten Sabu against Traylor. I went and watched it just for the fucking hell of it. Cause it's like, what the fuck, Sabu in WCW? Uh, it's just as crazy as you would assume a three-minute Sabu match would be in 95. Um, but yeah, a lot to get into here. So, Okay. That DQ stipulation was not revealed until Nitro the following night, because it was revealed that Jimmy Hart double-crossed Togan before the match—he's going to double-cross him in the match, obviously—and put that clause in the contract uh, for this match. So in theory, this made Giant the new champion, but in actuality, it was just a way for them to have the belt vacated with controversy, and so it could be put on the line in the very first World War III Battle Royale in November, uh, which Randy Savage would win. Uh, they used the same fucking haunted house graphic from all those previous years in the opening video. I was like, after 93, got rid of it, they brought it back. What the fuck? Why yeah. did they bring that haunted house graphic back? Oh, uh, this
2: time they had the really weird prose about how the giant has been haunting Hogan, and <laughs> I almost went back to transcribe it, because it was that out there and weird, but then I was like, <laughs> no, no, I'm not watching that again.
1: Now, um, I watched the sumo monster truck battle just to be thorough. I don't know if you watched that or not. So did
2: I. I'm so <laughs> glad you did.
1: So yes, be- besides their wrestling match, Hogan and the giant each got in a monster truck on the roof of Cobo hall, which is I guess next door to Joe Louis arena and yeah, convention
2: Sorry. center. Or I was just like, yeah, it's like the big convention center in Detroit right next to Joe Louis.
1: So they're on the roof of this thing. They're in a big circle. There's random things to explode. One of them does explode, apparently. Uh, and the, the, the two trucks are welded together, and one truck is trying to push the other one all the way out of the truck. They, they, they're all the way out of the circle. They they make it very clear. Both axles, both sets of wheels have to cross the line to win, because Giant, at one point, does push Hogan's uh, monster truck like halfway out, but it doesn't count, apparently.
2: I thought um, the Giant won on that. It looked like it was all <laughs> out, and they were just trying to cover for Hogan.
1: Um It's apparently, it was raining in Detroit. It's very wet up on there on the roof. It looks very, it looks both dangerous and yet also boring. Uh, His two trucks slowly pushing each other back and forth. Definitely not the most exciting television. Uh, Hogan does finally win, of course. God forbid that man do a job even in a monster truck sumo match, I guess. Uh, Giant gets out of the truck. He's very mad. He chases Hogan to the side of the roof, starts choking him. They fight up on a ledge. Hogan, like, Moves his arms up to get the giant's <laughs> arms off of him. And giant goes, Whoa, like waves his arms around and then falls off the side of the fucking building to his apparent death. Hogan like tries to reach for him, which I, that, that was a good touch. And then he gives up well, one really funny. Oh no.
2: Right. That sounds very like, that's what I was going to say It's the most unconcerned. Oh no. <laughs> Someone help. Imaginable. Uh, he runs off for
1: help. Now they show the river. I guess saying giant fell in there. I'm almost positive the river was not actually touching Cobalt Hall. I think they no. made that up.
2: Yes, no, there's uh, no way he would have landed in the river from yeah, there. Yeah, he would have landed on the parking lot. Uh, also, he would have been seriously injured falling into the river from there, if not killed. <laughs> Just it's that it's high enough. Like
1: <laughs> it's still you still not good to fall into rivers from that high now. So Hogan comes out in his uh his strange pre Hollywood dark side attire. That looks almost exactly like the NWO attire he would wear. He would start wearing in, uh, in midway through 96. So it's very weird to see in hindsight. But he also does have this Taskmaster style like painting on his head. That just looks very funny. Yeah,
2: that was so weird. <laughs> I don't know if that was supposed to be like his way of trying to psych out the giant since, you know, the Taskmaster was with him. But that that was odd.
1: Yeah. Um, now he burns that attire at World War Three the following month in the the same famous promo to open that show where he burns a copy of the Wrestling Observer and declares yeah. the internet is where they have all the scoops, which is yeah. one of the. You, know, you remember that promo?
2: Oh yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it's one, one of the funny,
1: one of the wackiest promos of all time. But yeah, so Hogan comes out here. He's in his black attire. So is Jimmy Hart's in black too? But Hogan's making his I'm sad face, very funny. He's sad because he accidentally killed a man. Uh, but then the giant just walks out. Uh, Tony, as the giant walks out, Tony Schiavone very casually just says he's risen from the dead. Like with all the emotion I just declared I just delivered that line with. like he knows yeah. this is stupid he can't make it sound believable so he just says it like as matter of fact as possible he's right. risen be- from the
2: dead. And that becomes kind of a <laughs> reoccurring theme for or through the match from both him and Heaton where <laughs> not to spoil what you're going to say in a few short minutes, but there's a lot of downtime in this match. And so it'd be like an awkward silence. And then one of them would be like, well, I don't know how Hogan's going to win. Apparently the giant can't be killed.
1: (laughs) Hogan makes his very funny shocked face. Like I thought this man was dead. (laughs) This is so fucking funny. Uh, Giant. He very slowly beats on the Hulkster. He chokes him in the corner We get a very long test of strength, really thrilling stuff. Now I have to say, this match sucks, but the crowd fucking loves it. You do have to say that. They love this fucking match. Hogan's very basic comeback. They're going fucking crazy. Uh, The reaction when Hogan hits some clotheslines, eventually knocks the Giant over the top rope. They make a huge reaction for that, even though Giant selling is like horrible. I'm not trying to pick on Paul White. This is his second match ever. Uh, His first match was uh, for something called the WWA for the WWA Heavyweight title where he lost to a guy named Frank Frank Finnegan uh, by Count Out at the Route 30 Mall in Clementon, New Jersey on December 3rd, 1994. Don't know why he worked that show, but he did. I think it's
2: actually his third match ever. Are we already forgetting the Monster Truck Sumo match? Oh, that's true. I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Giant comes back from that though. He puts Hogan in a very long bear hug. I mean, very long. It feels like it goes on forever. Uh, Hogan finally fights his way out. He runs right into a chokeslam from the Giant. uh Giant covers, but Hogan, of course, kicks out and he hulks up. Hits some punches, hits the big boot. Giant still won't go down. So Hogan rakes his eyes and then finally hits the body slam on him. uh Jimmy Hart, though, he turns off camera, takes out the ref. So great job by the camera crew. Uh, he takes out the ref, just as Hogan hits the leg drop. Uh, Jimmy feigns innocence, but then he shoves the referee down, hits Hogan in the back of the world title belt. Hogan, of course, completely no-sells it, but Giant saves Jimmy Hart. He puts Hogan in the back in the bear hug. Luger and Savage run out next. Okay, so they have been doing like a weird thing where you couldn't trust Luger, right? That was the whole thing? Yep. And Luger and Savage run, Luger runs out he's going to help Savage. Uh, Jimmy Hart nails Savage with the title belt. Savage sells it. And then Luger just starts stomping him. So he like it was a weird turn, but he did turn on Savage to join up. I with think the it was Dungeon. the
2: most of all the post match craziness. I thought it was the one element that kind of made sense, at least because they did they were playing. You know, still the is Luger trustworthy, and then Savage did just beat Luger yeah. in the match before this one. So at least there was. I think that turn could have worked if it wasn't in the middle of the horrible mess that was <laughs> happening around it. Uh, speaking of horrible
1: mess, the giant Yeti, as Tony Schiavone, why is he call him that? Every
2: time Tony Schiavone said the Yeti's name, he said the Yeti! <laughs> I assume he popped Bobby or someone the first time he did it, and was like, alright, I'm doing that every time now.
1: Oh, it was so fucking funny. I mean, he it must be his way of making fun of it or something, but yeah, he's like, the Yeti! <laughs> So the giant Yeti, he's a fuck. For some reason, he comes out of a block of ice. His name is the Yeti, but he's a mummy. I never understood that one after all this time. So oh, he's a no gi- he's the future Reese from uh, the, the, the fucking flock, I
2: think, right? Yep. Yes, he is. And
1: he comes out. He and the giant give Hogan the infamous double hump bear hug. From each side. So Giant has him in the bear hug. The Yeti goes around the other side and just fucking humps him. That's what he does. I'm not even exaggerating. He right. grabs Hogan from the other side. He shakes his body around and like acts like he's humping him. Like, yeah, what
2: well, the fuck am I watching? My notes were... Yeti comes in, gently rests his arms on the giant's shoulders, <laughs> and then gyrates his body on Hogan's back. What
1: the hell? What, this looks sexual. This did not look like a, a, a fucking painful maneuver.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Luger well, puts Hogan.
2: He went back to the same spot a second time just a few <laughs> seconds later. So. To, yeah, Luger, Luger puts Hogan
1: in the, in the torture rack. And yeah, then they give Savage the same devastating double hump bulldog. Uh, I was generous. I gave this a dud because the live crowd liked it a lot, but it was pretty horrible. Uh, Michael Buffer announces the Giant as the winner by DQ. I guess that makes sense because Jimmy Hart is Hogan's manager,
2: and he attacked the ref first. So that actually that that is logical, right? It's one of those. It technically it makes sense, but I don't know if it's still the angle you want to do for a wrestling audience even if it <laughs> technically makes sense yeah
1: i mean I technically i don't really have a problem with that part of it i guess but he, but michael bobber does say the belt can't change hands on dq and giant celebrates with the belt anyway and leaves so i guess we don't find out about that rider in the contract that jimmy hart put there uh, as part of the giant conspiracy until the following night on nitro but there you go that's how the show goes off the air with uh, hogan and savage laying there from the devastating double hump bear hug Anything you want to say about
2: this? Um, (laughs) I mean, I don't know what there is to say about it a whole lot. Um, you know, Giant in his WCW debut is in the main event of Halloween Havoc right away, so you know, there's that. I will say for this being his first real match ever, for about the first two to three minutes of the match, I thought, like, okay, he's looking a bit more comfortable in the ring than I thought he would. This is not the worst and then there was like a really awkward i think a body slam spot where they just could not get on the same page at all and it was just all immediately downhill after that um uh, and honestly so yeah, the most formulaic hogan match imaginable like it was mid 80s wwf um but also like mid W or mid eighties WWF, like you said, the crowd was invested in the match the entire time. Uh, yeah, I was how brutal it was.
1: I mean, if you if you've watched any WCW from like Hogan's debut until the turn, this was not common. There were a lot of crowds right. where Hogan was not over with the crowd at all. I mean yeah, no, I that's was why sh- they turned him heel I at was the shocked.
2: end. Exactly. I just I assume this was another one of those audiences that were just or you know, from this era where every audience essentially was against him. But um that wasn't the case. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought the announcers had a couple of interesting moments <laughs> since there wasn't much going on in the match itself. I thought it was very interesting to they directly referenced WrestleMania three a couple times in the match. Um, so, and you know, in a way to build up the match itself, so mentioning the competition, not to put them down, but to try to give more context and history to the Hogan versus Giant. Um, I also thought it was interesting they kind of buried the giant for being i don't know probably near the end of the match being like he kept injuring hogan's match in the run up to this i'm not sure why he's not attacking his neck tonight um but yeah i mean it was just it was a weird match made all the weirder because of that the opening sumo truck monster truck crap excuse me um and then the giant coming down to the ring looking i mean just fresh as a daisy nowhere whatsoever <laughs> it was
1: even wet Right. It's just wasn't the idea he's thrown in the river. He wasn't even wet.
2: And even if he wasn't <laughs> f- or thrown into the river, it was raining quite a lot. And then
0: but he so was he, fucked.
2: He looked like he was dry as dry could be. Right. It looked like he exited the river and he only had, I think, about 10 15 <laughs> matches or, or 10 15 minutes to the match. Yeah. He exited the river, got into the building, went to the locker room, completely dried off put on his wrestling gear and then casually came out for his match like nothing happened like oh yeah I'm here I'm alive don't yeah. worry about it I got this um and then yeah the the just all the angles and turns at the end and the yeti being involved I'm sorry just, uh, excuse you the yeti excuse me yes it was it was too much and it was I mean, yeah. I, I will just say, like, as a star raider, I very rarely give duds. I very rarely give five stars. Like, something has to be absolutely horrific to get a dud. And um, this one was, despite the crowd enjoyment, was easily a dud for me. The match was long and boring and, with lots of awkwardness. And just the beginning and end context around the match just made it that much more unbearable. And so... You easy know. dud lowest moment of the six matches we watched
1: uh finally the last one we watched here was from the Halloween Havoc 1999 show uh, October 24th 1999 from the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas Nevada an attendance of 8,464 a pay-per-view buy rate of 0.52 which sounds much lower than all these other ones but compared to what the Russo era would later do. Uh was it's not. about to get much
2: worse. Yeah, it's about
1: to get much worse. Uh so yeah, this was the very first pay-per-view of the Vince Russo era. They basically took over starting with this show. As a result, there's really not much on the show. And we probably got the best one last time. We got Eddie Guerrero and Perry Saturn. Uh, so that was about as good as we could have gotten. This time we got Goldberg beating Sting in 308 to win the world heavyweight title. Uh, sort of in the main event, uh, an unscheduled main event, which we got a lot to talk about here. So Sting, he won the WWE title from Hulk Hogan the previous month at Fall Brawl, where he turned heel on Hogan. Uh, that went over like a wet fart. Right. Uh, quote first of all, turned heel. <laughs> what
2: the f- I said, quote turned heel because the yeah. fans didn't think he turned heel in the yeah. Match. The
1: crowd reacted huge. Okay, so think about this. Put yourself in the fans. You're in the shoes of a WW fan. You're someone who still cares. Enough about WCW to watch this promotion. You have seen Hollywood Hulk Hogan be the top heel in the company, literally try to destroy the company for three straight fucking years as the leader of the NWO. And now he's suddenly a babyface again for whatever reason. And the buildup is like, oh, can Sting trust Hogan not to turn on him here? Uh, the crowd obviously, when Sting takes the bat from Luger and nails Hogan, the crowd pops huge. The crowd is like, good, give it to that fucker. He deserves it. That's basically the reaction. It didn't, you can't have someone turn on Hogan after all the shit Hogan has done in the past few years. It just did not work at all. I mean, the, you know, you can say Hogan's babyface face all you want. He has spent the last three years mm-hmm. talking about how much WWE fucking sucks. I mean, he is the heel in this company. So it just didn't work at all. And Sting um, was
2: the baby face of ex- the company exactly. during that time.
1: Now, do you remember this hilarious video they aired on Nitro around that time trying to support the heel turn? Basically retconning the entire past three years of Sting as the top babyface in the NWO era into how he was supposedly
2: secretly the bad guy the whole time. Right. Like he was he had separated himself from everyone and yeah, it was just constantly ambushing people if his bad and just yeah. It was so, so absurd. absurd. Right.
1: One of the most absurd videos I've ever seen. It's like, you can't retcon an entire period where he was the top baby face and make him the top heel. It was really stupid.
2: Well, especially for something like wrestling. This isn't like a comic book or a TV show or a movie series or whatever. Like, you know, you have live audiences every week who know what happened. You can't just tell them like, oh, yeah, we totally changed what that meant now. Please boo this guy.
1: (laughs) Um. The other problem, of course, was that this was all done by a booking team that was a lame duck booking team. So why the fuck they thought they needed to, you know, do Sting as a heel at all? Like, they knew they were lame ducks already. So it was really bizarre that they did this big Sting angle. So Halloween Havoc, this is Vince Russo's first show in charge. He doesn't give a fuck that they've built up the Sting-Hogan feud for the past month, two months. He go, has Sting and Hogan go out there and do the pin-me-pay-me deal, Now, what's really funny about this is everybody remembers Hogan laying down at Bash of the Beach 2000 for Jeff Jarrett the following year, not even a year later, like, you know, uh, what is it, like, nine months later, eight months later? Everybody remembers that because of the Vince Russo promo afterward and how Hogan felt legitimately double-crossed and then became a lawsuit. Nobody remembers that they did the same fucking stupid fake shoot angle less than a year earlier. With the same guy, like, isn't that
2: kind of insane? It
1: feels well, like you
2: know. I was to say just to like reinforce your point when you first assigned this match or told me this was one of the matches we were watching. Um, I was yeah, like, I assigned. Nothing. I for remember- the randomizer. Assignment. Yes, that's what I wanted. To <laughs> and I was like, wait, Sting versus Goldberg for the title? Like, I I didn't even remember the main event for a second. And then you mentioned, yeah, it's when Hogan laid down for Sting earlier, and then all of a sudden, like, it just. Came back to me. I was like, "Oh no!" And like, yeah, I had completely forgotten. I guess because of what Russo WCW would become in the months after. But like, somehow, like, yeah, I had just completely forgotten about both Hogan laying down and even the Sting Goldberg main event at the end of the show until you prompted it a little bit, and then I was like, oh, crap, I do remember that. That was awful.
1: Now, the Hogan laying down thing went literally nowhere. I don't know what the original plan was, but basically, so Hogan lays down for Sting. They don't even acknowledge it, because they got, they cut right to a video package for Goldberg and uh, Sid after that, I guess, to try to push that it's real. Um, but Vince, whatever the plan was to bring Hogan back or do anything with Hogan uh, based on this, I mean, Vince Russo gets turfed, in January of 2000 for the first time. So Hogan just comes back and, and th- never mentions this again. He just comes back as a baby face uh, during the brief Kevin Sullivan era before the Ruchoff era, the Russo and Bischoff era in April. So he just comes back and they completely ignore this ever happened. So that's why I think nobody remembers it. It didn't It didn't lead to anything. Yeah, no, I mean, there's was, no follow-up. There's no follow-up at all. Just go, it just becomes something that happened. Uh, Goldberg, meanwhile, he had beaten Sid Vicious in a – uh, U.S. title match that they built up for like I think three or four months of Sid Vicious uh, right. doing his own fake uh, Goldberg streak that made no sense that like he would lose matches every, that...
2: right everyone he power bombed count counted as a win so <laughs> I remember there was like one Nitro or Thunder or something where a bunch of jobbers ran in and he power bombed like all twelve of them and they're like each one is a win at increasing the streak <laughs> and it's just like all right let's just calm down here.
1: But they, the point is, though, they built that match up, but it's not like again, Ventura doesn't give a shit. So he has Goldberg win a seven-minute match by quote blood stoppage, despite the fact that Sid uh, was barely bleeding, if I remember correctly. I didn't watch it again, uh, which I'm sure the people loved as a payoff after three months or so worth of buildup. Uh, and then they have Sting come back after the Hogan laid out laid down for him and issue an open challenge. Uh, he never says his head was on the line. That ends up being its point later, and the announcers even say this is a non-title match for so the match starts.
2: Yeah, I think um, they said like we were told by the committee or whatever this is a non-title match. Yeah, like, make a big deal about.
1: So it. So there's no controversy. I don't know why there was ever controversy. Uh, the other thing too about this is like if if you had kept with the original, like like this should have been the Starcade main event, right? Like it felt like that's where they were leading. Right. Where Sting is getting the big heel push and Goldberg's getting the big baby face push, and they're like, let's just put it on a. Halloween Havoc with literally no bill on a (laughs) a pay-view people had to have already bought. It's like, wow, Vince Russo for you, everybody.
2: Nobody would want to pay for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sting and Goldberg, they do some sloppy brawling in the ring and on the floor. Uh, Goldberg's controlling the match until he accidentally hits the ring post. Uh, Back in the ring, Sting hits an elbow drop. He hits a splash off the top rope. Then he hits a very awkward-looking spear on Goldberg. Goldberg, though, immediately no-sells it. He pops up, hits a spin kick uh, that only looks like it missed by about 50 feet. It's too bad the one on Bret Hart couldn't miss like that, I guess. Uh, Sting has to sell it anyway, though, but then he sidesteps a charging Goldberg in the corner. He Goldberg spears the post. Sting then hits three straight Stinger splashes on him. Goldberg ducks under Sting. He leapfrogs, which that was a really cool leapfrog, and then he hits this huge spear, that spot was pretty fucking cool, at least. And then he jackhammered sing for the win. Uh, it's three minutes long. There was one cool spot. I don't know what you want from me here. I gave it a quarter star for the leapfrog spot, I guess.
2: All right. Um, yeah, I enjoyed this match more than you. Um, I thought for the circumstances of what everything was, the terrible booking around it, and again, maybe it's just the bar had been lowered so much by the first or the previous match we watched, but. I thought it was a fun enough of a sprint and I liked Sting splash off the top rope. I liked some of Goldberg's moves. Um, I liked the energy Sting brought to it. It wasn't an era. He was always bringing a lot of energy. So I gave it two stars below average. (laughs) Definitely not worthy of a main event or anything like that. I don't want to try to like make it seem like, no, this was some long lost classic that was actually brilliant. Nothing like that. I did enjoy it enough to be like, it was just kind of bad. Um, which is more than yourself. Um, I did think it was weird. So I was watching this on the Peacock app thing. Yeah, me which too. Is, yeah. So not, as you know, not always the easiest to navigate when you're looking for a very specific match. And so one thing I want to point out was I did catch the end of the um, Paige flare match before this, which the very end of it is Paige laying out Charles Robinson with a diamond cutter and just leaving him for dead. And then at the beginning of this match, like Sting makes a deal on X's three. He's like, there's not even a referee for this. We need a referee. And Tony's like, we do need a referee. And we know it won't be Charles Robinson after what happened. And like, literally as he's finishing his sentence, Charles Robinson comes sprinting out of the back, perfectly fine, despite just eating DDP's finisher, like a minute before this. And again, just one of those very WCW um, feeling moments. And yeah, uh, match ended. Buffer announced Goldberg is the new champion. I don't know if he just didn't bother reading his cards. Yeah, so or... Buffer announces what?
1: Goldberg. So Goldberg celebrates. The referee hands him the title. He's announced his new champion, despite all that stuff about being non-title before the match. Uh, and there's a long pause. The announcer's fin- Bobby finally says, well, don't look at me. Right. And then Tony <laughs> is like, I guess he's the world champion. That about sums up, I guess. I guess he's the world champion. The following night on Nitro, Sting would rightly be like, I never said it was for the title. And for some fucking reason, instead of hanging the belt back and being like, you're right, Sting, here's your title back, they vacate the title. It's like one of the worst uh, controversies I can remember. I think the
2: official explanation was because he then attacked Charles Robinson after the match because Lord knows WCW champions never, ever hit a referee. (laughs) At any point outside of the match during this time period, this was a just a a horrible thing that never was happening in WCW rings, and so they had to punish Sting for it. Yeah,
1: there you go. I forgot he gives yeah gives Charles Robbins the death drop, but yeah, they stripped Sting of the title. They have that horrible like what was it sixty four man tournament for the title leading up to mayhem, where like the people would advance by losing or get reinserted back into the bracket.
2: It was like seriously one of the worst tournaments of all time. Yeah. Uh, I remember Medusa was entered into it because they were looking that hard, I think, to try to fill out the bracket. Yeah, Medusa, uh,
1: who like, who dumped the w nitro perfume on Bobby Hina on this show. <laughs> <laughs> one of the really funny segment. Oh, we didn't mention Med- earlier. Uh, after that uh, that 91 match, that's the segment where, where after Vader beats, uh, not 91, 90, no, 92. After Vader beats uh, Nikita Koloff. Like right after that there's an interview with like Vader, uh Harley Race and Paul E Dangerously and like Medusa interrupts the interview for some reason and Paul gives that infamous firing speech on the on the spot where he just like He's like, he's so misogynistic. And he's like, mm-hmm. you know, I know women don't know how to read and all this stuff. And she, and she just kicks him right in the fucking head and beats his ass. The crowd is going crazy. And Vader and Harley Race is like, what? Well, we're leaving. It's like, what's the, yep. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest part of it? Because she kicks his ass and starts beating his ass. And these two, they were hired to do a job to defend this right, US like, title. We got
2: our check. Like, <laughs> we got our check.
1: We'll see you later. They just leave. Kick and call him. It's really fucking funny. They just like they don't try to pull them off or nothing. They just fucking leave. But yeah, I wanted to, I forgot to mention that when we talked about yes, Vader. I'm yeah. glad you brought cool that up. But yeah, Medusa. Medusa got some big moments on these shows. Kicks Paul Heyman's ass in '92, and then dumped the uh, nitro perfume on Bobby Heenan's head in '99. So
2: right, which again, you know, it's nit- I want to say it's nitro perfume, perfume, cologne, whatever. It's stupid. They Nobody spend so much time it. talking about how much it stinks.
1: Right. She That's what I it
2: It's your branding and then on your pay-per-view, you're talking about what a horrible product it is. <laughs> like, what are you doing?
1: Oh, uh, they were so fucking funny. WCW, everybody. This is why I do these episodes, because they're always a good time. Because this company was so insane. <laughs> it was like, like, at least if you're going to be bad, you need to be fun bad. WWE yeah. nowadays is almost never fun bad. It's just like brutally boring no, bad. Bo- yeah, brutally boring bad. These, these were fun bad. Uh, I mean, there were like flashes of Fun Bad, like The Fiend against Seth Rollins, or pretty much anything involved in The Fiend. But, you know. Uh, anyway, so we can wrap things up here. Uh, another Halloween Havoc retro roulette in the books. Might have to make this an annual tradition because there's a lot of fun. These shows were like horrible, too. So, like, there's, yeah. so, there's so much to uh to mine here
2: but so. as i was looking through the cards i was like oh despite some really good matches um halloween havoc was definitely never one of their <laughs> more stellar pay-per-views that is
1: for sure uh all right anything you want to plug before you wrap things up here
2: um nah, just be nice to everyone people have fun watch some old wrestling it's not the worst in the world there you go
1: all right, so, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at WrestleOmakase. Uh, wrestling would not fit. So we'll be back in two weeks, uh, not next week, because, again, every other week. Uh, so probably Sunday, November 14th, uh, I'll be talking about the AW Full Gear pay-per-view and New Japan Battle in the Valley, their U.S. show from that weekend. So the, both those shows take place on a Saturday the 13th, so it's kind of a big weekend, I guess. And we'll talk about both those shows. I don't have a guest yet, so we'll see. But uh, I have a few people I can feel like I could ask. So anyway, uh, that'll be in two weeks, our next episode here on the free feed. And again, the Patreon, if you somehow fast forwarded through everything or something, the Patreon is on hiatus. So the next time you hear from me, will be in about two weeks for the Full Gear and Battle in the Valley review. Uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you uh, for listening as always, and we will see you next time.